This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. I'm not sure about you, but this has been a really long summer. And where I live, it's a really long, hot summer. We're talking about 110 degrees Fahrenheit, which is 43 degrees Celsius. Now, for us humans, there's air conditioning, thank heavens, because if we didn't have it, we'd be in bad shape. But what do animals do that, say, live in the desert? How do they keep cool? By the way, the word that uh, biologists like to use for controlling temperature is thermoregulation. When talking about controlling body temperature, we want to answer a few questions. And one of them is, how could we learn from animals to thermoregulate our environment so it's easier for us to keep our cool? And to answer this, we have two guests to talk about thermoregulation. Dale DiNardo is a professor in the ASU School of Life Sciences. He works on a really, really interesting animal that's pretty cool. At least it's able to keep its cool even in the hot desert. It also has the look of a prehistoric monster lizard and maybe where it got its name, Gila Monster. My other guest is Arno Floesweik, who's talking with us from St. Udenroden in the south of the Netherlands. Arno has over 10 years' experience in all kinds of energy, innovation, and waste-related projects. He thinks the way nature solves heat and cooling problems are something we should be looking into. He also has a very cool project. It's a website called World of Warmth, where he has, along with other content, some great animal thermographic pictures, which are a creative way to help understand thermal regulation. You can literally see what's hot and what's not. A warm welcome to the show, Dale. Glad to be here. And Arnold, I really appreciate you uh, chiming in from clear around the world in the Netherlands. Yep. For the geographically uh, challenged like myself, I had to go to the map and make sure I knew that uh, if I'm not leaving England and going to the west to see Ireland, I'm going to be heading out to the east and going to, yeah, to the Netherlands. It's small and dry and sunny at the moment. So. Oh, so what's the temperature there now? Well, it should be in, in degrees here. Um, 23, 24. We'll get there in December. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think you're talking Celsius, though, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay. Dale, since we're talking about thermoregulation, and we're talking about thermoregulation in animals, which we are, what are some of the basic things we need to know? Well, first off, we need to know, just like most processes that animals have, temperature regulation has to be kept within a set limit, and we tend to call these homeostasis, meaning the boundaries at which we can have things fluctuate a little, but not too far, whether that's our body temperature or blood glucose levels or anything else. And when we talk about temperature in animals, we tend to divide them into two groups, cold-blooded and warm-blooded animals. And those are awful terms. And that's one thing we're going to get out of this is eliminate those terms because most animals, most vertebrates especially, like their body to be relatively warm and they want to keep it controlled. Uh, The difference is that birds and mammals are what we call endotherms, meaning they produce quite a bit of heat from metabolism, just their machinery of their body working, and therefore they can heat their body through internal mechanisms. That's what we do. However, other groups, such as reptiles, amphibians, and fish, do not have that furnace inside. But they do have a thermostat, meaning they do want to keep warm, they want to keep within a range, but they just don't have the furnace to heat themselves. And so what they need are external sources, either the sun for radiant heat or warm rock, which would be conductive heat, 
but they both have the goal of keeping warm. It's just whether the heat source is internal, endotherm, or external, and ectotherm. And your Gila monster is actually an ectotherm. My Gila monster is definitely ectotherm, which for desert species, that's not a big deal because it's one thing there is plenty of out there in the desert is heat. So why waste energy to produce a lot of heat when energy is limited? There's not a lot of food out there. The heat's free and save your energy because you're not getting a lot of food. Uh, So I often see the little lizards around here sunbathing on rocks. Exactly. And they're just taking advantage of that free heat. And that's why in deserts, there's much greater species diversity among lizards and snakes and than there are among mammals because mammals take a lot of energy to work. And we're eating three meals a day. My Gila monster can get by on two or three meals a year. Two or three meals a year? Yeah. But realize their meal is eating about a third of their body weight. So it's like me taking down four or five turkeys. Um, so <laughs> Okay. Well, Arno, you and I are going to have to stick with the three meals a day, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Well, so we're talking about this Gila monster and... My question is, how do these animals keep their cool? Are they just hanging out in the shade all the time? Well, a couple things. is One, I want to clarify that with the name Gila monster is that they are lizards, largest lizard in the United States and one of few venomous lizards in the world. But the interesting thing is just because they live in a hot desert, they don't prefer to be hot. They actually have a relatively low preferred body temperature, which is about... 29, 30 Celsius, about 84, 85 degrees Fahrenheit. So they prefer to keep relatively cool And to do this, when it's hot and during the hot months, they come out only at night and they stay underground during the day. Underground is a great place to be to avoid heat. They can vary their depth of how deep they go. As you go deeper in the ground, you actually can be cooler. So they can make adjustments. When they're underground, it doesn't mean they're just sitting there sleeping, but they can move up and down to get that temperature they want. The problem with staying underground, which they will do, and they can do weeks on end if needed, is the food's not underground. They eat the contents of nests, bird eggs, uh, small mammals, uh, nestlings. And so you, you can't wait for an egg to roll by your burrow. You have to go out and look for this egg. And so it means they have to come out, get exposed to hot temperatures, and there's, it's dry, so they can lose a lot of water. And so they have various adaptations physiologically that they adapt to this. One is they can actually use their bladder, their urinary bladder, as a canteen. Okay. We, you know, they can carry this water around with them. And normally what we put in our bladder goes one way and Right. you know, the toilet or something. But these guys can actually reabsorb the water component of that urine back into their system. So they use it just like a big water bottle that's inside of them. And this is extremely valuable. And we've shown if they didn't have that water bottle, they'd never make it through our dry summer, that this water bottle is critical to their survival. Okay. And the upper range of their body temperature, you said, was around 30 degrees Celsius, which is cooler than our body temperature, actually. Yes, it's quite a bit cooler. We say 36, 37, right? Yeah. Wow. I want to talk more about the animals. I also want to talk about what Arno's been working on, and that's kind of the idea of the environment itself and how do we regulate the environment so it's easier for us to keep our cool. Arno, can you tell us a little bit of ways that we can do this or some of the things you've been involved with? Well, there is a regulating system. I stumbled upon it about five years ago while looking through infrared cameras. And what I find interesting is to make the translation from what animals do and what people do. You look at environmental sustainable problems in the world, many of those are in one way related to the choices that people make, well, basically thermoregulating. Right, and on your website, the World of Warmth, the images up there, let me just describe a few of them there. First of all, extremely colorful, and the range goes from a dark, deep blue all the way up to these incredibly bright reds and yellows, and it makes it 
pretty easy for you to understand what's going on with temperature because the reds and the yellows are the really hot areas. And we get down into the blues and the purples, that's the cool areas. You use these when you're talking to people about thermoregulation. And when we talk about the animals, we can see the different hot spots and the cool spots. Do you look at buildings? Yeah, I look at everything. I'm, I'm some type of photographer, and a photographer needs light and needs contrast to create images. And I'm always looking for thermal contrast. So when someone is having a cup of coffee, uh, I see thermal contrast. When someone uh, is having a cold Coke, I see contrast. When the sun shines on one side of a building, I see thermal contrast. So I always look at a um, surface and try to imagine what kind of temperature it might be. And I'm using more or less the same techniques photographers use with composition and, and contrast. But the goal is always to um, make it as clear as possible for a broader audience. Well, I have to say a picture is worth a thousand words, and it seems like the thermographs are a picture full of hot and cold words. And I, I try to use it as yeah, some kind of proof. It's not a goal on itself to make infrared images. I try to use it to prove these thermoregulation uh, stories. What does it take to take these thermographs? Go down to the local store and you can find an infrared camera? I mean, it used to be there was infrared film, but you know, everything's digital now. So yeah. Well, well it's, it's in the, the technique itself is about 50 or 60 years old, so the technique itself is not, not new. It's uh, originated from the military, you can imagine, it, night vision. And recent years, the technology has become cheaper and more available to carpenters or plumbers, for example, to find leaks in, in floors and uh, find leaks in houses. So the technology or the veterinarians using to find uh, infections. So uh, last years or decades, it has become more available to the, to the public. Hmm. How much does an infrared camera cost? Well, they range from, I think, $3,000 to fifty, sixty thousand dollars It is still expensive for a camera, but uh, years ago they started at uh, $30,000, $40,000. So they were not um, not available for the plumber to find leaks. But uh, they are affordable, and there are, you have different qualities, of course. You have uh, It's about pixels, the uh, same as with normal cameras. With many pixels are still uh, very expensive, but uh, the cheaper ones, uh, they produce a good image, and they are... And we use many different cameras, so uh, one, once in a while we borrow them or we rent them or we, we have cameras of our own. So we, the, the collection of us, you, you will find many different images made by different cameras. It also depends on the, on the, on the topic you want to you wanna cover. You can do the same in the wintertime. The aerial images were done in the wintertime as well to find uh, insulation uh, leaks in roofs. So you can use them both for in, in the winter as in the summer. And Yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. All right, well, let's talk a little bit more about our animals, too, here. So we talked about the Gila monster, and it, it's, it's making choices. And I think, Arno, you've actually talked a little bit about choices that are made by humans. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. But let's talk about other methods that animals use to control temperature. You actually sent uh, one to me, Arno, this morning about why flamingos stand on one leg. When you take this, this thermoregulating point of view, you always want to does it have anything to do with thermoregulation? It must have been some thermoregulation tool or something. So this standing on one leg by flamingos, it has been researched recently by uh, scientists, uh, and it seems to do have, have a lot to do with thermoregulating. You can imagine when you stand on one leg, the other one uh, in between the feathers won't cool down as much as the one who's standing in the water. Another example, Dale? Another interesting one that came out recently, also in the bird world, is toucan. Oh, yeah, I read it. Yeah. 
you know, when you think of a toucan with this brightly colored big beak, and people think, oh, that's to crush, you know, nuts and fruits. It's colorful for attracting mates. But actually, it's been shown that that large bill is actually serves as a great heat irradiator, actually releasing heat from the body and actually a way which these birds can cool themselves. And that's true whether you're talking about big elephant ears or even dinosaurs like Stegosaurus with these big spikes on their back were thought to be thermoregulators. Right. So that in this case, they're, they're figuring out mechanisms to release the temperature. Now, if we go to the world of polar bears, more recently they've been talking about the fur of polar bears, and it's actually not white. Yeah. Polar bear fur is actually clear tubes, and they actually have black skin to allow them to, to gain heat. And these clear tubes actually transmit this light into the skin where they can reabsorb it because black things get warmer, being on the asphalt of the street versus the sidewalk. And if you're in Arizona, you know in the summer you don't walk barefoot on the asphalt. But, yeah, so this white is just, that's what we're seeing. But really, if you look at these hairs, they're not white. They're clear, and they're just little fiber optics that actually bring light down. And if you also look at a polar bear, they also have very short ears. Ears aren't very important for them. They don't have to pick up far sounds. Sight's very important, and staying warm is important. So you don't want these extremities to lose heat from, and you want to bring heat to the body. White's a good color for a polar bear. A black polar bear wouldn't eat too much out there as a seal could easily see this black (laughs) polar bear coming, although it would be a nice way to warm up. So here's a compromise. This animal has a black skin, but you don't want to show that black skin, so you have these fiber optic cables, these clear hairs that bring that light in to gain heat to the body, but to something looking at it, it looks white. So it's just a perfect compromise. Right. And I mean, and early fiber optics, as you mentioned. Well, what, what might be interesting is, is a polar bear is really built to to keep the warmth inside. Right? But even a polar bear uh, needs to uh, release uh, warmth when he has been running a lot. So it's not only about keeping his warm inside, but he also needs a tool or a trick or whatever to get rid of excessive heat. So what does the polar bear do to keep cool? I think he's panting. Panting is one of the... Mm-hmm. Um, few things he can do because he's that well insulated he doesn't have mess, as much uh, options I think the main thing is panting yeah, that's the, the reason why a polar bear can get a heart attack while running because he gets overheated Yeah, it is interesting that a lot of these polar animals whether they're seals or polar bears they have a greater risk almost of overheating mm-hmm. than of freezing because they're so well adapted to dealing with it they have insulation through blubber or hair they have these short limbs and all things. So like a seal, if it comes out and baths to warm up, it, ha- it can't do that for too long or else they can overheat and they have to get back into the ocean to do that. So it is interesting. We tend to think about because we're putting ourselves on the ice cap in, in the North Pole or whatever, but these animals are well adapted to them. They have these insulations. They don't raise their metabolic rates to produce extra heat. They're so well insulated and they have all these adaptations for that temperature to be their comfort zone. They like it when it's below zero. Right, and part of the insulation, again, is fat. It's fat and it's hair. Well, this gets back to even humans. Another reason to keep thin is if you have less fat, it's going to be easier to keep your cool. There's a great book about it. It's uh, Body Heat, and it's uh, about anorexia and obese. And basically, it's a, it's a book about thermoregulation and explains both uh, problems from a point of view from thermoregulating. It explains a bit that people are more like tropical animals. They are built to get rid of excessive heat and are not really built or designed to to keep warm inside. So basically we have to do more effort uh, to keep warm when it's cold than to get rid of warmth when it's warm. So how do people keep warm? They can cuddle and, and bring their arms in, huddling in, 
they have hair with you know especially if you think about people we've lost a lot of our hair over most of our bodies compared to most animals but we do have a lot of hair on our head and that's because the brain you want to keep warm to have good function if your brain's not functioning well you're not going to do much of anything well and so it's like with babies don't have hair you want to put hats on them all the time well we've maintained the hair on our head to help keep that heat in so what's up with goosebumps Goosebumps, basically a remnant of our past as being a furred animal. And basically, if you think of a dog, when it gets cold, they'll raise their hair and they'll thicken their coat. They'll fluff up. Birds do it too. They fluff up when they're cold. Well, the way you fluff up is you contract these little muscles in your skin that stand these hairs up. Well, we still have those little muscles in our skin, but we don't have the hairs to stand up. And so when you get that contraction, that goosebump is actually this little muscle that's contracting, trying to get this hair to stand up. The hair doesn't in there, so you have just the bumps. If you shave the dog and you saw it when it raises its hair, it'll also have these little bumps on it. So a goosebump really doesn't do us any good. It's just a past remnant of fluffing ourselves up to keep warm. Right, and I don't want to see a lot of dogs shaved out there just to find out if <laughs> you get goosebumps now. I, well, we're going to take Dr. Donato's advice on that, that it happens. That's some of the mechanisms of keeping warm. And we've talked about animals, how they are keeping their cool. What do we do to keep cool? What in particular, we talked a little bit about them, but in general, what are the major things that help us keep our cool? Well, the primary thing we do is behavioral. We go to a place where it's cooler. The whole If there's trees, you go under a tree. If it's, you know, in Arizona, you don't see a lot of people out during the midday. Um, those are summer. those choices. Yeah, right. those are those choices. You make those choices, those decisions. And those behaviors, even though we're endotherms, we're producing our heat internally, we still can take advantage of external heat sources and cooler environments also. So we are making those choices. The other way we keep cool, the, the primary thing is we shiver um, if we're cold. And therefore, shivering, muscle contractions, that produce heat, just like if you go running. And we sweat to cool off our bodies by producing that water, releasing it, and evaporation from it. So we use mainly shivering to warm our body and evaporative sweating for cooling off our body. Right, and the shivering is, as you said, it's the muscles are contracting, which means they're doing work. And whenever work is done, heat is generated. Just like if you go running and you get very hot. Not, Not only do you get very hot and you feel hot, your skin turns very red, and that's just your body trying to get rid of this excess of heat. When you went running, you didn't do it to produce heat, but as a result of running, you produce this heat, and you need to shed it, so you bring this blood flow to your skin to release that heat. We have our Gila monster that it sounds more to me that part of its regulation is making choices, right? So it chooses when it's really hot, Let's if I can do it, I'll go out at night and in the, in the really hot times of the summer. If it's also hot, I can go deeper into the ground where it's cooler, burrow down further. Arno, do humans have choices? Yeah, many Maybe too many choices. <laughs> when we pick our holiday destination, 99% of the people will choose for a sunny location. We always talk about the weather. We always talk about having clothes, which is warm, which is cold. And when we enter a room, we uh, always say, well, it's warm here or nice and cold here. So we always, we were thermoregulating every day. It really depends on the person itself, which choices he makes. Is he old? Is he young? Is he healthy? Is he sick? Does he like uh, being pampered with all kinds of uh, equipment? Is he an outdoor person, eh, which does all the thermoregulating itself? Well, probably no two the same persons using exactly the same uh, thermoregulating toolbox. They're always making different choices. Now, some of our choices are whether we're going to be using things to cool us down or keep us warm that take a lot of energy or things that work just as well that don't take a lot of energy. Can you give us some examples in that? Yeah, for example, I'm obviously fascinated by the, the phenomenon of taking cold showers. Uh, about three 
to 7% of the, the Dutch people takes cold showers once in a while. Uh, you have a choice. You can take a warm shower, a hot shower, or a cold shower. So that's an obvious choice. And when uh, many people make the same choice, it might have serious effects on, on the energy bills. You can put on the heat in, uh, in your living room uh, pretty high based on the person who is complaining the most. Or you say, well, uh, I'm lowering the room temperature and well, uh, put on a sweater or something else. So you can have many different choices and they have huge impact on the energy bill. I think you can explain, well, let's say three quarters of your energy bill by thermoregulating choices. Right. And that, that's why energy bills vary that much by uh, household. This is more than just uh, talking about the physiology of yeah, keeping ourselves hot and cold. To give an example close to home here, we live where there's a lot of air conditioning, mm -hmm. uh, which takes a lot of energy, a ton of energy. But you can actually raise the temperature that make it a little bit warmer in your house if you have fans moving air. So, Dale, why is it that I can go into a room that has a fan blowing and it might be actually warmer than a room that's air-conditioned to a lower temperature, but I feel just as comfortable? Well, one of the things when your body's releasing heat, it's releasing it immediately to the air directly surrounding your body and your, your hairs on your arms and trap that heat and you get these little... Um, boundary layers that surround the body and therefore even though the room temperature may be 78 or 80 Fahrenheit the immediate temperature of the air just over your skin may be several degrees warmer because you're heating that air well what the fan does is it blows that warm air that you've created off of your skin and it replaces it with other air that's slightly cooler and it continues and we call this convection so it's, it's the conductive heat loss in the environment but the wind that's going is actually going to help move that air and keep up a gradient between you and that outside environment. And so it, it feels much more comfortable. Arno, since we were talking about choices and some uh, things that are going on in the animal world, you have this really wonderful project that's called Trees for Grannies. Can you tell me a little bit about Trees for Grannies? Yeah, sure. I love to. I started about um, one and a half year ago. And uh, basically because there was a very famous campaign in the Netherlands called Trees for Cows, which ended last year. And I was really sad that it ended, so I had to find a way to continue this campaign. And this Trees for Cows is really a clear campaign to plant more trees in meadows uh, to provide shades for cows. And do the cows use these trees? Did you find yeah, out? Yeah, they love them because when they, it's a sunny day and you walk in a meadow with fences around and you can, you, you can walk left or right, and, but you can't find any shade. A few trees, well, they really means a world of difference for those cows. So coming back to these choices, three or four trees in a meadow means a very important extra choice for these cows. Well, there was also a big uh, heat stroke in 2005 in the Netherlands, which, which also affected healthcare um, locations, senior homes. Paris, it was like horrible, like thousands of people died early, basically because of the, of the heat. Mm -hmm. So I tried to translate these trees for cows into a campaign suited for uh, the healthcare area to explain them a little bit about thermoregulation and to put the finger on green, so use more trees, mo use more... Uh, shrubs around the um, buildings to, uh, to be able to cool it down and to give also the older people a choice like the cows when well, it's hot you can stay inside we also can look for a cool tree so um, I have feedback from several governments that they planted extra trees based on this story well with Ask a Biologist I always ask three questions of all my guests and you guys I'm not letting you off the hook <laughs> so I'm going to start with Dale 
when did you first know you wanted to be a scientist or biologist? Early on, as I was, you know, even just growing up as a teenager, I was thrilled by a question. It was always about a question. If I got an answer, it was always, what's the next question? Or what are the next two questions? And so I didn't know what the careers were to deal with that, but I did know I liked asking questions and I liked trying to answer them. And then as I went through school and I realized, you know, as a, a biologist, I could put that love of animals together in my just natural tendency to want to answer questions together. So this would be from a really early age. This is very early age. Really? Yeah, I was one of those fortunate people that knew early on what I wanted to do, and I was in an environment and had the, the necessary skill sets to actually achieve that. Okay, so Arno, you're really hooked on doing these actually really artistic things, and you do a lot in the world of engineering. When did you know you wanted to do this? Well, I stumbled upon this topic of thermal regulation only about five years ago when, when I started projects uh, using infrared cameras. In that case, I'm not a real scientist. I'm, well, I just found this, this topic of thermal regulating. And since then, I've been to read and, and learn as much as possible about it because I, uh, well, I finally found what I was looking for, I think. What did you like to do in school when you were growing up? What was your favorite subject? Yeah, more the, the, the biology type of... Uh, of subjects, I love to look around. I'm more like an observer, look around, and which is science, number one thing. Yeah, basically. <laughs> if you go and observe the world around you, you're going to have a really hard time uh, being a scientist. Well, what if I took it all away from you? What if I said you couldn't be a horticultural engineer, uh, someone interested in environment in the way you are, and you can't do your your wonderfully cool images? What would you do? What would you be? Um. With a bunch of friends, I run a street theater company. is a big word. We, we do a lot of street theater acts in, in the Netherlands. So, uh, like a musical, what do you call it? A children's orchestra. Like we give away all kinds of instruments and then we uh, make a really lot of noise and, and try to make it uh, some <laughs> kind of song. But that's what I probably would do if I wasn't involved in this thermal regulating thing. I would do that probably uh, more than, uh, than I'm doing right now. But A street performer. I like it. <laughs> All right. Well, Dale, what I'm going to take everything away from you, and I don't know if I mentioned that you're the, also the veterinarian here at ASU, so I'm, I'm taking that away. You really got to stretch. What are you going to be? What are you going to do? That's a tough call. I don't have an artistic side. I enjoy the arts, but probably I'd switch over to something like engineering, even if it's mechanical engineering. Or I'm always amazed when you pick up a simple instrument. I was just using a pair of wire strippers recently, and I just looked at these things, and I just said, to come up with, with that solution to a problem is, again, you get to challenge your mind. You get to think. So you'd be an engineer. All right. What advice do you have for a young person? What's your advice? First, keep your eyes open. See what's around you. Don't have preconceived opinions. Don't do what mom and dad want you want to do. Don't do what you want to do because you've wanted to do it since you were five. Always have an open mind. Always be seeing what is out there. And the second thing is learn more about it. You know, go out there and figure out, you know, what does it really mean to do that? Get involved, work for people who do that, or even volunteer for people that do that. So get experience doing it, but it's not going to come to you for free. It's not going to come. You definitely have to put energy and effort into it. If you have the commitment and the drive, you'll be able to do what you want to do. So, Arno, what's your yeah, advice? I agree. Uh, put more energy in learning about biology. Uh, I, uh, I've been working on this term regulating for five years now, and I think I understand maybe five, six percent of all the stories out there. So <laughs> there's so much to learn out there about biology. Uh, and if we don't, 
Well, yeah, I think we're losing sight of very interesting stories. And so when you have the chance, learn about these stories. Even though I have a lot more questions, it seems to be time to say goodbye to our guests. I want to thank you, Dale DiNardo, for being on Ask a Biologist. Glad to be here. And Arnold Floswijk, I can't thank you enough for being willing to experiment with us on our new Skype setup in the Grassroots Studio. You sound like you're right here with us, even though you're on the other side of the world in the Netherlands. Yeah, you're welcome. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guests have been biologist Dale DiNardo from the ASU School of Life Sciences, and from the other side of the world, engineer Arno Floswijk. If you haven't already made a note about the World of Warmth website, the address is worldofwarmth, all one word, dot com. There's a collection of some amazing images you need to check out. Also be looking for a companion article on Ask a Biologist about thermal regulation, because I'm really counting on Arno sharing some of these cool images with us. Is that a deal? <laughs> yeah, that's a deal. Okay, the Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the grassroots studio housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is a unit of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.